Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shock Doctors podcast. I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Gerandese. And we are the Shock Doctors. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Out of Darkness, which follows a prehistoric band of hunters and scavengers who have found themselves stranded on a desolate shore. First they're starving, and then they're being hunted. Yeah, it's a uh, lean and mean sub-90-minute kind of survival story set in prehistory. I liked it quite a bit. The group is sort of a splinter group, I think, of some larger tribe or faction, and the movie opens with much friction between them. The decision to go where they wound up has understandably come under fire because they are shivering and starving and then being seemingly hunted for sport and picked off by some kind of pseudo Stan Winston predator kind of creature uh, who we only <laughs> glimpse you know as it's as it's rushing through the foreground and the background and picking them off one by one uh, it did put me in mind of Prey from was that last year or the year before a uh, year before Dan Trachtenberg, a pretty good movie, which I don't remember. We, we did not review, near as I can recall. I think we decided that that was a little too action-y, although considering that we're doing this one, I would say this is probably more horror, but like you say, there's a lot of shared DNA there. Very much so. And the Predator character obviously has the like horror pedigree. So it's good, the name recognition, but we're covering this one instead. And I do think for what it's worth, this one has a couple of standout ooky spooky or, or in some cases splatter moments that do push the needle for me just enough to give it the edge over prey. There's one particularly grisly scene where they have to mercy kill a guy who's, who's in a very bad way. <laughs> yeah. That, I think, firmly puts it into horror town. But good movie. Not a whole lot to say about it by way of preamble. The characters being, you know, these prehistoric humans. They don't have... It's kind of mythic, you know? They don't have a ton of interiority. There's not a lot of, of nuance to the table. It's kind of, kind of like a fable structure, I guess you could say. But, we, you know, there's enough infighting and enough texture to not feel like you're just... I don't know, watching primitive homo sapiens like hitting each other with sticks for 90 minutes. You know, I mean, it, 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 there, there's, there's, it's, it, this it, is it, not, not 10,000 like, BC. No, <laughs> yeah, it's not like Raquel Welch in a fur bikini, nor is it like Quest for Fire, for example, where they're more simian. When I say 10,000 BC, I wasn't even thinking of the Raquel Welch one. I was no, that's thinking 1 million that, years BC. I yeah, 10,000 no, 10, yeah. was the one that came out when we were in high school. Was that, that I, Roland Emmerich? It might have been. All I know is that it seemed to get a lot of advertising play, and <laughs> then just nobody I know saw it, and it completely dropped off the radar. I mean, people, people want to talk smack about Avatar doesn't have any cultural impact. What's <laughs> what's Sam Worthington's character's name? Ten thousand BC is a real example of that. Yeah, completely memory hold. We'd better nip this conversation in the bud or one or more of our listeners might request it for a special episode. <laughs> I think the cat might be out of the bag already. Yeah. Although, to be fair, I think that movie is very much not at all a horror movie. It's just a, you know, an action adventure sort of a thing. So uh -huh. I think we could reject it on those grounds. 
So there are six members of our not-so-merry band. There's uh, Bea, who proves to be the final girl, but I was not expecting her to be, which is sort of the mark of a good final girl, or at least a mark of a good final girl. You know, mm-hmm. I like it when movies have that sleight of hand uh, and, and don't announce right away, this is going to be the last man standing. Blood Simple, famously, is very good about that. Francis McDormand. What else? A- Adam, or Adam, I think they pronounce it, is sort of the chief who's getting a lot of flack. He has, I think, a son named Heron. There's a woman named Ave who is bearing Adam's child, if I'm not mistaken. And then there's two other guys named Gear and Odal. Gear is fairly likable. Odal is not. He's like, his, he's got, it's one of my favorite tropes in these kinds of like men on a mission movies. His function is to be the squirrely, untrustworthy son of a bitch. <laughs> who well, winds. Yeah, I remember, and, and those guys like, are are always older too, and this yes. is no exception. I remember being in elementary school or early middle school and watching Fantastic Voyage for the first time, and knowing almost at a glance that the character played by Donald Pleasance was going to like crack under the pleasure, crack under the pressure, and betray the whole team. Crack, and, crack you know, under the Pleasance. tune in for our sister podcast where we review donald pleasance's entire filmography (laughs) and as we slowly crack under the pleasance probably when we get to land of the minotaur (laughs) oh oh shit Another example, just for the hell of it, that jumps to mind is Dr. Gary Oldman in Lost in Space. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, he also uh, (laughs) metamorphoses into a spider thing to really culminate the... uh... (laughs) The pain. I remember the the standout image of that movie for me is he gets like he gets like a, a superficial cut on his I guess thorax at that point <laughs> and goes oh the pain the pain facetiously and then is devoured by his spiderlings his horrible brood yeah. uh, smell the blood and just swarm over him that's a fucking horror movie and a half <laughs> at least at least for that minute of screen time yeah, if sure you're enough. you know a child of the nineties. Yeah, the only other thing to uh, point out about all these characters is that Gear is Adem's younger brother. Right. So that's how he loops into the whole thing. And he also seems to have more than a little bit of affection for Bea. So that kind of ties the whole group together. We open with a spooky campfire tale which is interrupted by someone lunging into the firelight. I don't even remember who. It might have been Gear and going like, ah, boo, gotcha. It's like a Stone Age jump scare, uh, essentially. Which I, I, think I was it's, at first... I think it's Odal, because he, he's telling the story, and then he kind of backs into the darkness dramatically, and then uh-huh. we hear some shuffling, and then he pops out on the other side of the fire. Ooh, boo. Right, which at first I was put off by because that kind of jump scare, I, I didn't think jived with the setting. But on the other hand, it is 
probably not possible to think of a more primitive storytelling technique. (laughs) (laughs) Caveman stories probably did make use of the Blumhouse jump scare. (laughs) (laughs) We just haven't really evolved past that point, apparently. So I made peace with it. They are starving and stranded and uh, shivering their asses off. And there's, um, what are the standout scenes here? There's a scene I like near the beginning where two of the men come upon an exploded mammoth carcass, just like a a shitload of blood stained rocks and a pair of tusks. And it sort of turns briefly into like this caveman CSI episode where they're trying (laughs) to figure out what became of it and you know did it fall from the cliff or was it forced off it the was cliff forced. yeah it's like it's like anatomy of a fall but for a prehistoric elephant it's great <laughs> <laughs> and this is the first of many red flags that they have strayed into the territory of some very formidable hunter that you know takes out mammoths like they're nothing yeah So Ave is having a rough pregnancy, as if things weren't bad enough. And around this same time, Bea gets her first period, and there are multiple conversations that put me in mind of Steve Carell and Anchorman talking about how women's periods attract bears, and that's why he doesn't trust them. (laughs) You know, there's a a lot of talk, mostly from Donald Pleasance, how they should just throw Bea to the wolves because obviously her blood is attracting them. Now I'm just imagining Donald Pleasance himself rambling about a a woman's period. Uh, I have to get rid of her. One of their number is abducted in the night and they give chase. Yeah, it's the kid, Heron. Right. They come upon a just mound of presumably mammoth meat, but, you know, just just a a bunch of carcass bits that have been kind of, yeah, collected together. Night falls when they're in the middle of this wooded zone and don't really know which way is which. Yeah, and there's a scene earlier where Edem and Gear are scouting ahead. Purportedly, they're hunting, but there really isn't much around to hunt seems like and they see this forest looming up ahead of them and adem says we're gonna go around i don't care how long it takes we're not going in there but uh-huh. then of course he's forced to go in there to try and save his son and during this stretch unless i'm forgetting something the only directorial flourish in the entire movie that i did not care for rears its ugly head which is um well there's one thing i do like we singled out the sound design of the creatures in the no one will save you episode so it's only fair to do so this time the creature or creatures that are hunting them make this terrible high-pitched chirping noise as they're rushing about and in one instance that trilling is accompanied by this camera vibration effect that struck me as kind of bizarre it reminded me of you know when people are performatively freaking out about something on TikTok, and they'll just be, like, shaking their phone to sell the freak out. That that, that sort of rubbed me the wrong way. It didn't bother me in particular, but I imagine that if it had happened to hit me a little differently, it probably would have reminded me of, and obviously this is our touchstone for so many things, but, like, a Slenderman encounter in a YouTube series. (laughs) You're Uh, right, exactly. Where, you know... 
Usually it took the form of just digital tearing and distortion, but sometimes there would be a shaky cam thing too. And it's like something's happening that is fucking with the fabric of reality. And so the way you show that is by shaking reality around. Uh, you know what it reminds me of? It's it's that, that scene in Fight Club where Brad Pitt is monologuing directly to the camera. And he's like, you're not your fucking khakis. And the camera's going like... <laughs> <laughs> No, was, I'm there's not. Just, there's, <laughs> it's like your head is about to explode from the from the truth bombs he's dropping on you. <laughs> there's just I don't know. It wasn't a, it wasn't a deal breaker or anything. There's just nothing else in this movie that is kind of anything like that. So I could have done without it because otherwise it has a kind of stylistic purity that I appreciated. You know that befits a Stone Age story. You know, no flashy camera tricks. Yeah, no frills. And the other thing, you know, that dawns on me in retrospect about it, I just compared it to shaking the very fabric of reality. Given what we find out in the third act, that's particularly ill-suited to the moment. Right, because these are not predators that we're dealing with, or, you know, aliens or demons or, or what have you. I think it could it could still... I mean, that kind of extravagance could still be justified because their imaginations are getting the better of them. And that's also sort of the, the thematic crux of the piece and the final analysis. But still, I would rather ditch the shaky cam. Yeah. So Adem goes down, and this is the putting him out of his misery moment of grisliness that I was talking about near the top of the episode. They come upon him, and he is still alive, still gurgling not capable of doing much else. His jaw is ripped off his face, more or less. His mouth is just a, a pit, just, just a puddle of red goo. Uh, I, I think it, his jaw might be hanging down loose and also broken in half down the middle. So it's, it's yeah. like he's got fucking mandibles. It's gnarly. So they do put him out of his misery, and then there's a... Bea, uh, specifically, and this is mm -hmm. also freighted with significance because there's a scene a little earlier on where she goes off to uh, basically change out her prehistoric tampon or, or pad. She's using, I don't know, moss or something, and he comes up to her and... Yeah, at first it seems like a friendly chat, and then he basically menaces her sexually. You're yes. astray, you're here for whatever I need. That's right. This being is... sexual gratification. Well, because her backstory, to the extent that we're ever given one, is that she w was like a, like a foundling of some kind, or she was yeah. like absorbed into this unit, but doesn't really belong. And so she is made vulnerable by that, and that's a sentiment that Odal echoes later on when he proposes, you know, something equally nefarious, which we'll get to in short order. But for the time being, she does, you know, <laughs> give Adam his just desserts. And then there's a debate as to whether they're going to cannibalize his remains, you know, because they are starving. And one of them, I think, Gear says, we're not monsters. That's unthinkable. And I just, I had a laugh about that because it's like, Look, we, we, we made up our minds about the cannibalism taboo two generations ago. We're not beasts. <laughs> what do you take me for? It's about, it, it, it tells you, you know, because this is not an established fact. You know, when we sit down to put on a movie about these prehistoric individuals, we don't know what their moral compasses look like. So this is actually an important thing for the filmmakers to establish. Anyway, most of them wind up 
cannibalizing Adam or what's left of him. But Gear, I think, abstains, if I remember right. Yeah. As they are chowing down, there's a conversation that I liked, which uh, speaks to the thing I was saying a moment ago about how their imaginations are getting the better of them. And there's a fair amount of projection going on because they're talking about how, why doesn't it just finish us off? We trespassed. It's punishing us. It's going to eat us. Someone theorizes. And then someone else says, well, it didn't eat Adam and gear i am sure puts in no it didn't but you did you know yeah. so there's some there's <laughs> some projection and some hypocrisy happening they are imagining the beast to be capable of this thing that they are actively in the middle of doing you know this unthinkable kind of bestial thing so just from that you can kind of extrapolate where all of this is going there is a kind of twilight zony thing at play here where it's going to be revealed you know it, it's the monsters are due on maple street basically that old chestnut the real monster is man and to, to, <laughs> to quote the scary door <laughs> so odal sorry Dom. i'm just thinking of why should i listen to you you're hitler <laughs> Anyway, please continue. I saw a funny tweet earlier today that had that screenshot of like the holding up the mirror to reveal the Hitler reflection. And it was like Frank Herbert writing Dune Messiah. <laughs> you've, you've, you've been Hitler this whole time. <laughs> so Donald Pleasance, you know, squirrely, untrustworthy, pessimist saboteur that he is proposes a sacrifice to appease the big scary demon that's hunting them and yeah. at first he wants to sacrifice Bea because she's menstruating and then Bea manages to wriggle free of that predicament and so Odal I guess thinking that one woman is as good as another switches as long to, as it's not me I right, think it's switches to wanting to sacrifice Ave even though she's with child he does manage to fatally stab her but then she flips the script on him and breaks his ankle as he's like turning to leave. So then the two of them are dead or dying in the brush as night falls yet again. This leads to a sequence that I really liked because the temptation with these stories, you know, especially if the sanity of the characters is under assault, is to kind of push it in a psychedelic direction. You know, in an apocalypse now, that's achieved with LSD flares, copious amounts of smoke, and, uh, and and the doors. But how do you do that in the Mesolithic era? You do it with this big, shiny Aurora Borealis. And the music even gets a little more Mandy, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a little more Panos Cosmatos. And it's a great sequence. The remains of Ave are dragged into the darkness. And I think Odal is then feasted upon as well. I don't really remember how he meets his maker, but it's a joyous occasion, needless to say. So now I believe we are down to just Bea and Gear, and the Aurora Borealis has come and gone. So the Mesolithic Psychedelia episode is over. <laughs> but it was nice while it lasted. And they wind up getting into a fight with the creature that's been pursuing them and it's revealed to be wearing a mask they remove the mask during the scuffle 
and beneath the mask is a Neanderthal, a female Neanderthal with like the Geico commercial eyebrow ridge and everything. Just, a, you know, when you think a caveman, this is the face that you see. Mm-hmm. So they've been all this time not fighting with monsters, but with something that is human adjacent. Right. They pursue the Neanderthal into her nest, this dark, spooky cave, and do battle with the whole family, the whole clan, whatever it is. There aren't that many of them. And from this point on, none of them are wearing the scary sort of... It's almost like a like a, like a folk horror predator mask, yeah. is how I would describe it. It's like half Wicker Man, half Predator. Yeah, it's very, and, uh, very antlers. Mm-hmm. And from this point on, none of them are wearing masks because we have moved fully into monsters are due on maple street mode where it's like what half man wrought you know you know that kind of thing and i'm not i'm not knocking it because i love the twilight zone and when you can sell that kind of i don't know moral takeaway and give it that kind of terrible shape it's 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 all to the good so gear bites the dust and all of the neanderthals wind up getting killed the last of which oh important thing to note Heron is perfectly fine. He has been fed and cared for by the Neanderthals who meant him no harm and were, I think, correctly (laughs) assessed that he was going to starve to death. So they just sort of adopted him, you might say. And he is uh, distraught by all of this melee and carnage. Mm -hmm. The last Neanderthal to die is fleeing smoke from a fire that has broken out inside the cave. They all sort of... A a fire that Bea started, let's not forget. Yeah, no, and you keep thinking that Bea is going to have that moment of recognition, that moment of realization where the Twilight Zone moral epiphany kind of breaks over her brain, and it just never happens, and and, 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 and that's... it, It does, but only after they're all dead belatedly right so what happens and i was sure that the scales were going to tip at this point because the last neanderthal is in the mouth of this crevice with smoke spilling out of it and she's kind of begging and pleading and she knows heron's name that's the real kick in the teeth here and you think that you know heron has is, is going to her aid and trying to pull her out and then Bea brains her with a rock <laughs> and heron <laughs> Is you know it, it, this this all I admire this ending because it really does risk triteness, but I think it does achieve profundity. But you know, just in recounting it, it might it might sound merely trite. Heron is like beating Bea's chest, going like "monster, you monster!" And mm-hmm. uh, finally, there's some recognition of the fact that we were all just frightened prey at the end of the day, jumping at shadows. And then the movie ends with another campfire story, effectively, another folktale, another fable. And uh, I think the last line from Bea to Heron telling him a story is something to the effect of, what are you going to do? we got to learn from our mistakes, you know, and do better next time. I think she says, we try again. Roll yeah. credits. More after the break. Behind the ramp, look at the good. 
Hello, listeners. It's Jim, here as always during the break to tell you some stuff you probably already know. Please follow us on Twitter at ShockDoctorsPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ShockDoctorsPod, or check us out on Apple Podcasts. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you've got an idea for a movie you'd like us to check out, Feel free to send us a DM on social media or email us at shockdoctorspod at gmail.com. And now, back to the show. And we're back. I think I liked this movie just a shade less than you did, Matt. And it really boils down to how I feel about the ending. Uh Uh-huh. In terms of the general premise of the ending... I liked it well enough. As you say, the the whole Monsters on Maple Street thing is all well and good. And I don't know whether it's just because I'm an inborn pessimist and misanthrope, or at least <laughs> that's something that resonates more with me when yes. watching a film. The, the odal of the group, as am I, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> but I feel like it would have landed a little bit more if nobody learned the lesson ever, and maybe they all yeah. died. Well, they still might. I mean, there's no indication that they don't like see a herd of bison on the horizon (laughs) and go, thank God we're saved. (laughs) Right. But, but I take, but I take your point. It does. The last shot is very explicitly, you know, and here's the moral of the story, which is a tricky business. And it almost didn't get away with it for me, but I, I wound up liking it. The working title of this movie, the original title, I was just looking this up before we started recording. Because Out of Darkness is pretty generic. It's about as generic as it gets. Mm -hmm. The original title was, I think, The Origin. And that begs the question, origin of what? Human strife, basically. You know, or maybe The Origin of Mercy. Who's to say? Both, you know, Procanalus does. So that, that speaks to the kind of loftiness, I think, that the filmmakers were striving for here. I think that a more nihilistic ending would have pleased me just as much, but... The ending that they went with is, like I've said, kind of a kind of high wire act that can so easily go wrong. So I was I was impressed to uh, to see the the attempt, and for me it was a successful one. But it was it was kind of a near thing. Yeah, and I don't think the way it went was a catastrophe or anything like that. It didn't rub me so wrong that I came out of the movie thinking like, well, they really shit the bed at the end there. <laughs> it's just like. Okay, I think I liked this movie better before the last five or ten minutes, maybe. Yeah. And, you know, it's certainly been known to happen. I will say that this movie, I think, pretty safely tops the list of the last X number of movies we've done in terms of being any good. Oh, definitely. It's the best we've watched in some time. So that, in and of itself, is refreshing, even if I didn't think it was perfect. I don't have. We were musing during the break. Our shortest episodes tend to be the ones about lean movies that we essentially like, you know, because there aren't any <laughs> snags 
no rabbit holes to fall down where we're kvetching about this or that creative decision. This episode's shaping up to be lean and mean, just like the movie du jour. And I'm almost out of things to say. I mean, I have basically nothing but good things to say, but I'm also not so blown away by it that I'm going to be grabbing strangers on the street and shaking them and going, have you seen Out of Darkness? It's What day know, is it's... it? <laughs> but it's quite good. I think has has virtually no missteps outside of, you know, an ending that is divisive, which worked for me, but might not have worked for me on a different day. And the, the shaky cam thing, which my mind is pretty much made up about. But that's a small, you know, when, when your feet of clay are that, negligible you've made a very fine motion picture yeah it's certainly a great looking movie um, mm -hmm. throughout wherever they shot it i think they shot it in scotland just judging from one of the title cards which was for film scotland or whatever uh -huh. very suitably bleak more land mm -hmm. but you know also striking and beautiful in that sort of cold desolate way the night scenes and the, the firelight flickering across people's faces. I mean, that's all quite deftly done. You made mention of the sound design as a general thing. And as much as we doled out some praise for that, for No One Will Save You, I think that goes much more for this film. This film on a sound design level was really, I think, top notch. The creature noises, which is to say what ends up being the Neanderthal noises, reminded me more than a little of the sequence that I've talked about in multiple prior episodes, but hell, I'll bring it up again. I'll take any excuse to do so. The sequence in Annihilation, where... Oh. The team is being stalked by the dire bear. I, I yeah, the, the, the bear that screams like a human woman. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, it wasn't quite that unsettling, although it jumps a little bit more in that direction when we first see the Neanderthal woman with the mask off and we see the scream come out of an essentially human mouth. Yeah, it reminded me of those those videos you'll see circulating of like the the Aztec bone whistles that produce that absolutely blood curdling noise. Yeah, it's almost you know now that I think about it, it's almost in that particular shot where we see her just scream like that. It's almost the reverse of the annihilation thing where it's a demonic creature scream coming out of a human's face. Right, it's, <laughs> it's the same incongruity, but turned on its head you're absolutely right yeah so that definitely worked for me on the subject of no one will save you we railed against well it wasn't we didn't completely come out guns blazing we mostly came down in the negative in terms of that movie's essential gimmick that it was kind of interesting but overstayed its welcome and compromised the movie in all kinds of weird ways there must have been a temptation at some stage of this movie's creation to do something similar and maybe do like a quest for fire thing where the prehistoric people just kind of grunt at each other, you know, and to do more of a nonverbal 2001 A Space Odyssey kind of body language performance sort of thing where they're moving around on all fours and it's a, you know, a silent movie more or less, like No One Will Save You was basically a silent movie. And I'm glad they didn't go that route because these characters have a lot on their minds, more than you would expect. Like I said before, they don't have that much going on. You know, but they have some. Of, 
in terms of their interiority, but that's more to do with the fact that they're in a life or death struggle, and so they don't have time to get contemplative, but they are capable of contemplating and once things settle down, <laughs> which is outside of the scope of the movie, basically. So I'm glad that they didn't go that route. I'm glad that the characters are as chatty as they are, and I'm impressed because you would think, you know, especially when you bring in, like, the, the archetypal, shifty, Donald Pleasance-type character, you would think that that would make it feel much too contemporary and that the characters gabbing the way they do would rob the movie of its sort of legitimacy, that it wouldn't feel legitimately ancient and prehistoric, but it does. And I, I think that's a screenplay triumph. And, you know, it's to do with the filmmaking happening at all levels, but just on the page, I don't know how you write this and feel confident that it's not going to look like, you know, year one. Was that the name of the fucking, the, like, the, the, the stoner caveman comedy? Yeah, I think it was Jack like... Black, Michael Sarah. yeah. I think, as it turned out to be in No One Will Save You, I think it would have been a mistake to make these folks nonverbal. The language that they're speaking, I did a little bit of reading about it, not immediately prior to seeing the film, maybe a week or so ago. It's a wholly new language, to my understanding. It's some kind of modification of Basque, I think. Huh. I don't know how extensively modified or if it's cross-pollinated with any other extant languages, but it doesn't, not that I've heard every language in the world, obviously, but it doesn't sound like anything in particular, but it also doesn't sound like gibberish. Right, right. It's got a, a structure to it. Well, that that's very impressive. That's like a... That's like an Anthony Burgess move, you know, like, I, <laughs> right. like the monkey people in Quest for Fire also had an ersatz language <laughs> that, that, I, that I think was devised by Anthony Burgess. I think the reason I come down where I come down on the ending being more or less favorably inclined is that despite the sappiness of the characters learning their lesson, somehow in spite of that, it still feels uncompromising. Like, it, it would have been far sappier if that rock had not come down on the Neanderthal's skull. You know, when that happened, I, 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 I said, fuck me out loud, because I was genuinely expecting them to let bygones speak bygones and, you know, bury the hatchet. And the movie is hardcore enough to not make that concession. The concession it does make is that then in the immediate aftermath, the final girl sort of sees the error of her ways. And that might still be too sappy for some, but I think that that final kill kind of was stone cold enough that i was still that was enough for me even with the final story kind of putting everything in a more humanist perspective hmm. but you know on a different day pendulum might have swung the other way on that so i've name dropped quest for fire which is worth a watch Ray. Of course, I thought of many times while watching this. I think I like this a bit more than Prey, but maybe not by a huge margin. I like it. It, it. The whole thing plays sort of like a less problematic Bone Tomahawk, which is not to say <laughs> that it's that it's just better. I might like Bone Tomahawk ever so slightly more just because it's so harrowing. Yeah. <laughs> but another good movie, albeit possibly a more problematic one. And... The only other recommendation I want to make, and it's a movie that I name-dropped, I think, yeah, it was Night Swim, so not that long ago. Tree of Life, not a horror movie, needless to say. However, when I was pondering the potential meanings of this movie's working title, The Origin, I was reminded of that 
scene in Tree of Life where the dinosaur spares the other dinosaur. It's got its foot planted on the other dinosaur's face. They're in this kind of like riverbed. Mm-hmm. And then it appears to think better of it. And it's just this sort of inscrutable moment of compassion, possibly, which is, you know, a little bit asinine. It's like, it's, it's like you know, Tree of Life is a great movie. I even like that scene. But like the ending of Out of Darkness, it gets right up to the tipping point of like okay come on now (laughs) the dinosaur's heart did not grow three sizes like the fucking grinch if it was hungry it would have eaten the other dinosaur's face off but because it's terrence malick we're meant to think that we're witnessing something kind of mystical and maybe the origin of some kind of spiritual humanistic something or other and it's it, it it flirts with triteness and achieves profundity, which is the same thing that I said about the ending of this movie. I like Tree of Life a lot, modern classic, so that is high praise indeed. But if you don't like Tree of Life, you might not like this movie for similar reasons. So, <laughs> sure, <laughs> that's a uh, that's it. I think I'm spent on the recommendations front. So I mentioned, as I often have, Annihilation. I'll recommend it again. I will recommend it again in the future. I'm sure. All of Matt's recommendations, I will second those as well. The one fresh recommendation I guess I'll make, this was already on my mind, but it's particularly fitting since Matt brought up Stan Winston, Predator, and specifically Prey. I'm going to recommend the 2010 film Predators, which is, I feel, the black sheep of the Predator family. I've never seen it, but then I've also never seen Predator 2, so I have a double feature waiting for me at some some, point. Some work to do. Obviously, everybody knows the Schwarzenegger original and AVP kind of brought Predator back into the public consciousness somewhat. And then even though it didn't make much of a splash, I think the Shane Black film from a few years ago probably still made more of a pop culture impact than did predators so as i said predators is sort of the black sheep of the family in that way it's i'm trying to think of a film to compare it to it's a little bit like alien 3 which i've also sung the praises of many times in that it's in the case of alien 3 it's a prison so they're criminals and that's not strictly true in predators where they're all just mercenaries or soldiers or whatever but it's Basically, a bunch of hardened men, and in the case of Alien 3, also Ripley, obviously, but a bunch of hardened men in a box, essentially, contending with an alien threat. And obviously, in the case of Predators, it's the Predator, or it's been so long since I watched it, I think the title might be literal. There's more than one that they're fighting. But it's got kind of a ridiculous cast. Adrian Brody, Lawrence Fishburne... Walton Goggins, Danny Trejo, early work from Mahershala Ali. I mean, just... Damn. Yeah, it's nuts. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so, yeah, it's. I think it's been unfairly slept on. It's not like, oh man, if you haven't seen Predators, you haven't lived. But it's a good time. It's a lot of fun and has a lot going for it. So, definitely worth checking out. Well, the uh, Neanderthal woman's skull having been pulped, I guess this brings another episode to a close. What hath man wrought? Indeed. 
Monsters are due on Maple Street. Yes, once, our once, hands will never be clean. Once we pave Maple Street in 45,000 years. <laughs> but until next time, I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Gerardese. And we are the Shock Doctors. We'll see you later. As always, we have some acknowledgments. Our music was composed by Will Connor. Audio for the bumpers was taken from Out of Darkness official trailer, Bleecker Street, uploaded by Bleecker Street. All rights reserved. Our next episode will be up on Sunday, March 17th, and we will be discussing Jeff Wadlow's latest abomination, Imaginary, about a possessed teddy bear. See you then.